Welcome to AI Arthritis Voices 360, the podcast solving today's most pressing issues in the AI arthritis community. We invite you all to the table where together we face the daily challenges of autoimmune and autoinflammatory arthritis. Every Sunday, join Tiffany and her fellow patient co-hosts as they lead discussions in the patient community as well as consult with stakeholders worldwide to solve the problems that matter most. Whether you are a loved one, a professional working in the field, or a person diagnosed with an AI arthritis disease, this podcast is for you. So pull up a chair and take a seat at the table. Welcome to AI Arthritis Voices 360. This is Tiffany, and I am one of the patient co-hosts on this very special episode that we are doing as a new breakout series on COVID-19. And I'm here with my co-host and friend and volunteer of the organization, Danielle. Hi, Danielle. Hey, Tiffany. How are you today? I'm I'm good. I'm good. Um, Under the circumstances, I know that, you know, this is this is something that we, we I, I don't want to say thrown together. We've worked very diligently <laughs> over yes. the last many, many days. Um, it has become a, a huge priority, but uh, this is something that we felt at our organization as the world is uniting and coming together. What could we do for a platform? What could we do to give back in this time? And what, do, what does our community need the most? And, and we talked and, and we realized we have this wonderful platform here at AI Arthritis Voices 360. And being an international organization uh, that covers the autoimmune and autoinflammatory diseases with arthritis as a clinical component, we could reach out to others around the world, other nonprofits, other rheumatology organizations, and offer this platform as a way for us to unite and communicate. And Danielle, you were the first one to jump on this. Yeah, I've been doing a lot of work with several support groups for people with primary biliary cholangitis, which is one of my diagnoses. Um, that's an autoimmune liver disease. It's fairly rare. So our community tends to be fairly close knit. And there were a lot of people in that group that were very scared and had a lot of questions. And uh, when I was teaching, I taught AP human geography. And a huge component of that is population studies, which includes pandemics, epidemics, you know, migration theories and things like that. My background is actually in anthropology. I was a government teacher because I also have a degree in political science. So it's so funny. It's like I've been training for this moment my whole life, you know? (laughs) Right, right. And as a person living with our diseases as well, I know we've talked about this in previous episodes. We all seem to bounce around on our diagnoses, but fall still within that autoimmune, autoinflammatory arthritis category. Right. And I also have um, rheumatoid arthritis and axial spondyloarthritis. So I'm trying to bridge divides between multiple communities because our concerns are really the same. Mm -hmm. You know, people who are immunosuppressed fall into that high risk category and we're not really getting the attention I feel like that we need from the media Mm -hmm. Um, because I see a lot of people saying like, well, but it's mainly elderly people. And I'm going, nope, it's that's not true. Oh, yeah. We'll definitely talk about that. No doubt. But that's a good segue to introduce our guest here. So Danielle and I are not alone. We, we have somebody else here. And um, we have Joe Coe from Creaky Joints, Global Healthy Living Foundation, who is Director of Education and Digital Strategy. Hi, Joe. Hello. Thank you both for having me on your show today. Well, I, I, as soon as we knew we were doing this, I messaged you immediately. You were, yeah, Creaky Joints was number one on our list because the way we work at our organization is when we've identified a problem, the first thing we do is we go out and we organize a team. We rarely ever work alone on anything. And the way we choose our team is we say, who's doing the best at this? And Joe, we just, Creaky Joints has been doing this now for a while compared to everyone else. Yeah, you guys' website is killing it. Thank you. So, yeah, we at uh, Creaky Joints and Global Healthy Living Foundation take our charge to help people with chronic disease very seriously. And we saw early in this crisis when a lot of um, governments and groups were not taking this virus seriously, we felt that we needed to fill that void and reach out and really amplify and support 
the voices of those that are most marginalized right now in this health discussion. And we started to talk about defining high risk earlier. That was one of the areas that we saw being something critically important to get into the narrative and discussion around coronavirus. And we also saw that we um, had hundreds and hundreds of community members asking us for information, confused uh, about conflicting guidelines, confused about what they're hearing on the 24-hour media cycle. And we really decided that it was our moral and ethic, ethical responsibility to take a stand, which first started by us canceling an event that we were hosting um, weeks ago prior to any formal declaration to cancel, but we knew that it was in the best interest of our community to do that. So mm-hmm. we um, really have tried to be on the forefront of this and work with groups such as yours to amplify that message and uplift the voices of people that are living with diseases that are invisibilized now in this disease and, you know, historically and, and currently by society. Yeah. And just doing a really a great job of that. And and we'll go more into uh, some of the the things that Creaky Joints is doing and how we all can work together. And I think one of the things that you said that's really important, Joe, was the work to amplify and support this group, the support the voices, amplify the voices, because you know, that's what at International Foundation for AI Arthritis, that that's our whole mission. <laughs> and I think that's one of the reasons why a long time ago, we we all can, our, our organizations in particular connected. We have such common goals and uh, common ways of working together. Plus we're global and, and we're, we're both covering internationally. So before we, we dive right into this conversation, I do want to preface by saying that we're not giving any medical advice. None of us are doctors here. This is going to be the beginning of a larger series. It was going to start by being an episode with Creaky Joints, and there's been a lot that has transpired, and we've seen the need to use this platform to, to grow and talk more about this. So we will have a rheumatologist and you know, physicians on at a future episode, not too long in the future. We're hoping to air that just actually a few days after this one uh, and where we'll cover more of those specific questions that you might have. But this is not deemed to be medical advice. This is, you are still you still should be listening to uh, the ever-changing guidelines in your country, in your state, in your province, wherever you are located, because it is changing. It is changing rapidly. But I'm going to dive in here in this conversation because, Joe, you brought up defining the, the high risk. And, you know, that's on our list of things that we thought were pretty hot topics. Would you go into a little bit more about that? We want to start. We really I know Danielle and I are very passionate about this and the whole fact that our community is not being recognized as high risk. Yeah, it's um, it's a really interesting and and painful challenge when you're impacted by diseases that often people can't see, and there's um risk for you for infection to begin with, and and really taking a lot of these precautions on a daily basis, which is a lot of folks on normal. So what we saw early on was that the uh, way that the uh, various organizations that we're talking about uh, coronavirus, we're defining high-risk groups uh, in very broad brushstrokes. And we understand why they would do that. They don't want to alarm massive amounts of people, and they don't want to um, create information that might not be totally accurate. So we respect the CDC being broad, but what we really wanted to do is was dig a little deeper and, and really try to figure out by working with uh, rheumatologists and infectious disease experts and epidemiologists and all the, the folks that um, have expertise in various areas of this to understand what is the risk for people in the Creaky Joints and Global Healthy Living Foundation community. By having an autoimmune disease, are you at an increased risk? Are you at an increased risk because of the, some of the disease-modifying anti-rheumatic agents that you take? These are questions that we reached out and asked uh, rheumatologists early on, and we're able to publish a uh, question and answer on a landing page that we developed on creakyjoints.org slash coronavirus, and it's uh, titled Coronavirus Questions from Immunocompromised Patients and the Best Expert Answers We Have Right Now, and we're updating that regularly. It was just last updated yesterday. 
Mm-hmm. And a lot of the initial questions that, that we heard the community asking, we brought to leaders to answer them and they're found in that document. Yeah. And the reason I know that is because your website is where I went <laughs> to get my answers. I I had those same those same questions. And um I think some I think the big burning one has been, do I stop my treatment? I know Danielle, we've we've heard that. From yeah. a lot of a lot of people. Everybody's asking, do I stop my treatment? Especially when the article came out that said that anti-inflammatories may be a problem. You know, we yeah. saw a lot of people saying, Oh my gosh, should I stop taking my medicine? You know, and um, so that I know that's probably the number one question most of the people in our community have. So we spoke to a, probably at least a dozen rheumatologists and um what what we learned was the the overarching opinion on that was that uh, folks need to be in communication with their doctor and now uh, a lot through telemedicine, um, not going into the office to reduce your risk if you have these types of questions, and that the uh, impact of uncontrolled inflammation um, and abrupt changes to your um, drug regimen can be uh, according to the physicians that we spoke to, very detrimental. Mm-hmm. So it's a decision that needs to be made with a physician. And also, um, if you're not um, having symptoms, a lot of the folks that we spoke with recommended staying um, on your current treatment. But again, we're not medical professionals. We're just relaying the information mm-hmm. that we have from the rheumatologists that we've spoken with. You know, what I think is really interesting, I was part of a conversation yesterday. I'll give a shout out, Jenna, Jenna Dye Fisher. She has um, axial spondylitis. So shout out. Hey, Um, she had posted something on Facebook about this topic and also specifically about how some of our medications are being tested in China right now to to combat COVID-19. And then there's also another article going around in our community about the cytokine storm and how we could be susceptible. Again, not going to go into a lot of that right now because we will have a rheumatologist who will cover more of those specific questions. But we do want to mention it because this all ties together in conversations that are going on in our community right now. And as Joe said, the bottom line is this is a three-month-old virus at the time of airing, at the time we are airing this. And there is there is not current research that we have on patients. Yeah. None of the research, even the articles that people are sharing where they're saying, oh, they've found this definitively, none of it's been peer-reviewed. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all very early in the cycle. And I think it's really important for people to realize that if they're testing Plaquenil as a potential treatment, if they're testing, you know, seen as a potential treatment, there is no way that you can know definitively that your medicine should be stopped immediately. And anybody who is concerned about their medication should definitely talk to their doctor. This is not, I read on the internet, so I'm going to take action. You know, that's not safe in this situation. Yeah. And that was a really, that's a really great point. And that was something that we felt that we needed to really highlight was that on the internet, there is a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of news that's being circulated that's not true. There's a lot of people that are trying to capitalize on tragedy and our community needs to have trust, trustworthy and reliable resources that direct them to the, to the right answers. And yes, as you said, Danielle, we don't, we don't necessarily have the answers. We have the best guidance possible that we have at this moment and that will change tomorrow. I believe also Kebzara is being looked at as one of the, mm. the treatment, the potential yeah, treatments that. That, um, that could be that could be beneficial. Uh, again, those studies and, and trials will take years. Yeah. And another thing that I have discovered in talking to people is I think it's really important also for people to understand that your average individual reading an article on the internet may not be well-versed in reading scientific studies, and they may not take the information from the abstract that they're reading and repeat it correctly. A good example of this is I had several people coming to me saying, oh, I saw that in China they're using vitamin C to treat the coronavirus, so I'm going to go out and buy a bunch of vitamin C. And, you know, I said, that doesn't sound like good science to me. Do you have an article? And they linked me to it. And when you read the scientific study, what they said was that if people had a vitamin C deficiency pre-existing, that treating it might be beneficial 
you know, so that their body would be in in uh, peak nutritional shape to fight off a virus. That's not the same thing as taking a bunch of extra vitamin C. So that's just one example. You know, people can be very well-intentioned. They're not trying to tell you lies, and they may be even citing reputable sources. That doesn't mean they have the information. I think that in times when there isn't information, people will seek sources and information that validates what they want to believe in to create some type of control over something. Yeah. Um, if we think about like the, the shortages of toilet paper, which didn't need to happen, but fundamentally, it, we got into our collective uh, consciousness the idea that this is something we could do to take control over a situation that we don't have control over. We can go try to buy toilet paper and, and hoard it because that will make us feel protected and safe. So I think uh, to Danielle's point, it's really important that um, folks know that they're not alone, that it's okay to not feel like you know all the answers, that you can um, become part of the solutions by working with organizations such as yours and Creaky Joints and Arthritis Power, which does peer-reviewed uh, research throughout um, the conditions that we talk about. And we can really fill that void with some positive energy and some positive messages to let people know that they're not alone. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm going to circle back, Danielle, something you said about the vitamin C, just to mm-hmm. just to build on your point, yep. <laughs> the build on our point of how there is just there's so much information out there and it is generalized. We have to remember that that's one of the reasons we're doing this. We feel there needs to be a place for our community, our autoimmune, autoinflammatory arthritis diseases, because our challenge is we don't know what those could be. It's too early to know. And that's why we, we need to do this. But you've mentioned the vitamin C. And this was, it's a different situation, but I was watching one of the briefings that was going on and they had a physician they were interviewing who said, look, what you need to do in prevention is to is to build up your immunity. You need to stock up on your vitamin A. You need to stock up on your vitamin C. Um, get your rest. And and it was just almost so generalized and matter of fact. I'm watching it thinking that's great advice for the average person. Mm-hmm. I'm already on vitamin A and vitamin C right. <laughs> on many other things, mind you. Right. And so we really need and, and that also spends, um, sends mixed messages to the rest of the world who we've, we've dealt with this situation for years. Oh, you should just try this. Yeah. Oh, I do this. You should do this. You'll be fine. Put this oil on your feet. Right. Yeah. We get that all the time. <laughs> I was waiting for like tart cherry juice to come up in, in this, you know. Just- yeah. Or yoga. Yoga doesn't cure coronavirus. No, no. <laughs> you know, I, I, I need to look this up. I have an article. I'm going to have to find it and, and, and link it to this podcast talking about misinformation. I wrote an article, gosh, a, a few years ago now, but it's called I Heard Unicorns Cause Rheumatoid Arthritis. Mm. And <laughs> with the whole play on, you can't go with what people are saying. And, and the, the thing I think that makes it even more particularly challenging at this point is these are very credible people. So usually in the past, our advice would be look at the resources. Where is this coming from? And while that can weed through some of this, there are very reputable people giving this advice. And again, it's great advice for the general patient population or the not even patient, excuse me, the general population. But that doesn't mean that it, it resonates within our own community. And I think there's a big opportunity here, right? So we have masses of people starting to understand the fear, the uncertainty that people with chronic autoimmune diseases and invisible diseases face every day. And I think that if we could start to build some empathy and relate to to folks that are starting to experience what members of Creaky Joints and your organization have experienced for most of their lives, I think that we can really use this tragedy to help people that don't have these diseases understand the lived experience of people with invisible chronic diseases. So I think there's an opportunity. We actually said that we said when we did our podcast meeting um, a few days ago, we were prepping for all of this. I, I said just what you what you just said, Joe. I said, don't think the irony has has escaped me here. 
that, oh my God, this has been our life. This is, we, they, I keep hearing the term new normal and it, and it sort of makes me chuckle because it's for the first time we all know. Well, if you have adult onset or you have teen onset. Now I do know there's lots of people who have lived with these diseases all of their life. So they, they haven't had that. Who am I now phenomenon or the sudden not being able to do. So that adds another layer. But regardless, we all, if you're living with these diseases, this is completely normal. This is completely something that we're used to doing already. Mm-hmm. Having to avoid situations where we might get infected. I know, Danielle, you had a lot of opinions, a lot of things on this. Yeah. Very early in in the media coverage of the coronavirus, especially when it was still largely isolated to Asia, the, the explosion in Italy had not hit the news yet. Um, and I was hearing a lot of people saying things like, you know, oh, I'm not worried about it. It's basically the flu. And I'm kind of like, OK, well, welcome to my life where I'm worried about the flu every year. <laughs> like This is, right. you know, there's so much entitlement in that thought process of like, oh, I can get sick. It's not a big deal. Well, you know, there are a lot of people in the community that cannot get sick and it is a big deal. We need everybody to do their part to protect those vulnerable members because I can stay in my house as much as I want to. Um, I'm still at risk if everybody is spreading the disease around the grocery store, the bank, like, you know, just basic places that I have to be able to access. Yeah. And I agree 100%. And we understand the flu. Right. Right. So we're, they're talking about the flu to negate this, this reality that's, that's frightening for folks. We understand how the flu is transmitted. We understand how we can vaccinate and reduce uh, likelihood for people to get the flu. Right now, there is no guidance. There is no science. There are no vaccines. We're all in the learning process. So negating an experience based on another bad experience, a person getting the flu and dying, really undermines all of the work that we should be doing as countries, as leaders, as public health experts. We should be taking the voices of those impacted by these diseases and listening to them, listening to the fear, listening to the anxiety, listening to the reality that folks live with, and then figuring out as a culture, as a country, as a world, how do we bridge that gap and how do we create um, a health system? How do we create a response to pandemics that centers on people that are most impacted by it? I think this is a really good opportunity as we're we're really getting into this whole social distancing and the pandemic is, Danielle, you have background in this. And could you give us a little bit of information on kind of the science of how pandemics come yeah. to be? <laughs> pandemics in 90 seconds on YouTube, right? There you go. Right. Yeah. So uh, the first thing I think is important for people to understand is the word pandemic, because I know when the news started saying that the WHO had classified it as a pandemic, people got really freaked out and really scared. And I, you know, the one thing I think is important is to understand what a pandemic is. An epidemic is a disease that is spreading from one central location. In other words, if you were to map all the cases, you know, on a map and look at it, there's an epicenter, hence epidemic. Mm -hmm. Um, A pandemic is when the disease has spread such that there is no epicenter. Uh, You know, you're seeing it in multiple countries. It's impacting a large percentage of the population. It doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the mortality rate or how dangerous it is or anything like that. It's just how widespread it is. So, you know, when they said on the news, this is a pandemic, what they were saying is this disease is in a whole bunch of countries. We already knew that. Mm -hmm. That's not necessarily, you know, anything to be afraid of. It is something to take seriously. Just like, you know, the influenza is something to take seriously because it impacts people. Um, Another thing that we want to look at is how pandemics spread. And this is this is a key difference between a pandemic and an epidemic. An epidemic typically spreads through contagion diffusion. In other words, everybody who caught it was in contact, close contact with someone else. And so it spreads out from one person. This is where you get the concept of like patient zero. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's isolated geographically to people who have been in contact closely with that individual. When you're talking about pandemics, then you start bringing in two other types of spread. Um, you have network 
contagion, which is when the disease is spreading along a certain network of individuals. The most common one would be aviation. Mm. So you see a sick person gets on a plane, everybody else on that plane catches the disease or a bunch of people catch the disease. And then you see the disease spreading through airports um, and you can track, if you knew who the patient was, Mm -hmm. you can track their geographic movement through this network of airports. That's really helpful. So can I ask you a question? Yeah, go ahead. I have a little bit of the answer to it. I took a statistics class in, for my public administration degree, and that was the only uh, exposure aside from another one in undergrad around um, stats. And I know that there's been a lot of talk around flattening the curve. And at first, yeah, I didn't understand that until I saw a meme with cats um, that explained <laughs> bell curves by a cat being in an upright position and a cat being laid out flat. And once they put cats over the bell curves, and the curves, I understand. I understood the the concept of flattening the, the curve. I think that um, with your discussion around pandemics, I think that the concept of flattening the curve is critically important. Is that something that we should talk a little bit about? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It is. So when you are charting an epidemic or the spread of it, um, or a pandemic, either one, you're looking at a a curve. It's called an epidemiological curve. And um, they can take all different shapes. Typically, they form some kind of an S pattern. So in the very beginning, there's not very much increase because it's the virus is spreading slowly from one person to one person, maybe to two people. And then you hit a critical point where it takes off and you have a sudden spike in cases. And this is where network diffusion comes in. Or the other type is hierarchical diffusion, which is where you see the disease spreading along a pattern. So, for example, if it spreads through very densely populated urban areas first and then spreads out to rural areas, this would be hierarchical diffusion. You can also have socially hierarchical diffusion where it spreads among a certain socioeconomic status group first, which I think we should talk about a little bit later when we get into Mm -hmm. social distancing. But so once network diffusion and hierarchical diffusion take hold, that's when you usually see that spike because someone can infect 200 people on an airplane. You're not really going to probably come in contact with 200 people in one day otherwise. Right. Um, And so once you take off from contagion diffusion to these other types of diffusion, that's when you start seeing pandemics and you see this big spike on the S curve. And then at some point it levels off. And it could be because the virus has run its course. It could be because it's a cold weather virus and it gets hot. It could be because governments step in and do something to contain. But whatever the, whatever the reason, it levels off. And so we look at the shape of the curve, and the steeper it is, the more serious the disease is, the more serious the response needs to be. So when you're talking about flattening the curve, what they're saying is we need those efforts to stem the spread of it to come sooner rather than later. And what's going to happen is that S is going to kind of lay down on its side. So a lot of people are under the impression that social distancing is going to decrease the total number of people who catch the virus. And it may. In ideal circumstances, that's what we want. That would be fabulous. Mm -hmm. Um, In reality, usually only testing and quarantining can do that. And we don't have enough tests in a lot of the countries that are impacted to really launch a meaningful test and quarantine response. What social distancing tries to do is to slow the spread of the virus, not necessarily eliminate it but slow it. So if you think of it this way, if you've got a thousand people that are going to contract the virus that live within range of a certain hospital, okay, if that hospital can only handle 100 people at any given time, if all 1,000 of those patients crash that hospital at the same time, 900 of them are not going to receive the medical care that they need because the hospital's capacity is the hospital's capacity no matter what, without some kind of outside intervention. But if those thousand people get it slowly so that a hundred come in at a time over a longer period of time, then all 1,000 people can get the medical care that they need. So you have the same number of people impacted, but the treatment that they're going to receive, the care that they're going to receive, the availability of ventilators and respiratory support therapy in the hospital is going to be drastically different. So when we talk about flattening the curve, we're not necessarily saying that fewer people are going to get the disease. Hopefully that would be the outcome. But the most important thing is to slow how many people are getting it. Toilet paper is the absolute best 
analogy that most people can understand, because at least in the U.S., we're having toilet paper shortages, right? Mm -hmm. The same number of people still need to use the restroom the same number of times. The reason there's a shortage is because they all tried to buy toilet paper at the same time instead of somebody buying on Monday, somebody on Tuesday, somebody next week. Okay, Mm -hmm. so the hospital response to disease is exactly the same. If we can slow it so that the patients are coming in in waves, then they should be able to meet the need. If everybody crashes the hospital at the same time, what's going to happen in hospitals is what we're already seeing with toilet paper. So essentially, share your toilet paper and do what you can to slow the spread of the disease so that hospital systems aren't overburdened and are able to help people that need the critical care in the hospital setting. Exactly. That's why, you know, people think of like social distancing as, oh, I'm protecting myself. And you are. And that's really important. But you're also saving lives, quite literally, because you are supporting your local hospital's ability to respond to the people who do get the serious version of the virus. And that's a really good point, too, in itself, Danielle, is you said the serious version. There was what and I told you to help me out on this, Danielle. There was an actor recently diagnosed. Oh, Idris Elba, my second husband to be. (laughs) Uh, Maybe you could get quarantined with them. (laughs) Yeah, that's good. I mean, there are very few things that I would take the coronavirus for. That one I'd have to think about. Oh, my. Um, But a perfect example of of the level of the efficacy of this, uh, again, of an unknown virus that that needs a lot of research. But this is somebody who just got tested because they had been exposed to somebody who had tested positive. They have absolutely no uh, symptoms whatsoever, which is a perfect example of what we've been saying for quite a few weeks now. I mean, depending on, on when you're listening to this, is there are carriers mm-hmm. and then there are people who could be affected and then there are various levels. And to your other point, Danielle, there are not enough tests, again, depending on where you live. Yeah. Very geographically specific concerns about tests availability. You know, I'll throw in my own personal story and I guess I'm going to have to call my parents and give them a heads up before this airs. Um, (laughs) Try not to scare them. Yeah. um, I haven't said anything. I just told my my husband yesterday and I'd only told Danielle, you were a handful of people, like five, I think, that I had been experiencing symptoms starting probably mid last week and a gradual, not like not like the flu that comes like hits you like a bus. Mm -hmm. Very gradual. And, um, you know, that the sniffles, the cough, feeling like I was very winded in meetings. I wasn't able to really talk that much. I kept feeling like I sort of that start of pneumonia, muscle aches, just, you know, to, but I don't have a high fever. That's the one thing that I'm missing. I have low grade, but that's a whole other conversation. Rheumatologists think that that has something to do with our meds. Regardless, I tried to get tested and I am, I do not meet the current CDC and federal guidelines for being tested. And and that's just so I've had to just take it upon myself to sort of self-quarantine. But the point of me saying it is it's a little it's frustrating to me for two reasons personally. And one of them is that I know that my husband will not self-quarantine with me for two weeks because I don't have a positive test. Mm-hmm. And we don't know. We really don't know if if I am affected or not. We have no right. idea. And And the second thing is my personal dedication to the rheumatology community. I mean, I have literally, literally dedicated my life to this cause, knowing that I could be and they could be tracking me bothers me because I feel like I could, you know, so I am going to be doing my own tracking, Mm -hmm. but I may never know if I if I've been infected or not, because I live in the middle of the United States and the trickle down effect to get tests available is who knows how long it will take. And maybe if I do have it, I'll already get better in the next couple of weeks. So, well, and that, that brings up another issue that I think a lot of people don't seem to understand. You know, I've seen a lot of people talking about the mortality rate and saying, well, it's only this, or it's only that. And we really don't know what the mortality rate is yet. You know, in any pandemic, the, the actual mortality rate is always an estimate. You know, the 1918 Spanish influenza pandemic, I've seen everything from two and a half percent to five point four percent because it's always an estimate. And they don't know 
really what the left and right limits of it are until after the disease has kind of run its course. Mm -hmm. Because when you're calculating the mortality rate, you're looking at how many people who are positive for the disease died out of how many people total were positive for the disease. You cannot calculate that unless you are testing the entire population because you don't know how many people have it. And you also don't know how many people, especially among the elderly, are passing away and their death is being written up to, you know, another cause and they were actually positive for the virus. So, you know, those numbers are useful in looking at in terms of, well, even right now, even based on the information we have right now, it is significantly more deadly than the flu. Yes. That's about it. There's not a whole lot more utility to those numbers at this point in time. And uh, Joe, do you have something to say? I saw your little light light up there. (laughs) Oh, I have a light? Yeah. Whenever you start to talk. I knew it it was in my soul. My light (laughs) shines, but I didn't know I had a light on (laughs) on this thing. Uh, Yeah. We, um, in terms of testing, we uh, interviewed my colleague, Lauren Gelman, interviewed a woman uh, we had to change her name to protect her identity. She goes by Diane Smith in this article from Texas, who had and has psoriatic arthritis, who had interacted with people that have tested positive, had people from China in her church and missionary work early on during the outbreak, and she can't get tested. Her physician wanted her to, and it really what what is troubling what we're hearing is the state by state differences in in how folks are responding to this. Some states seem to be more proactive, some states seem to be less proactive, and that also adds to the confusion and and lack of certainty around understanding. And our position is, is that if a physician and a patient feel that you should be tested, you should be tested, and we should find a way to get access to those tests. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. And I was informed by because I had to go through quite a quite a process to even be considered to get one of the precious tests. <laughs> and uh, and basically it just came down to they didn't worry too much about the fever. And I've done my own personal research that and again, this is new data. Like Danielle said, this is not even things that that are necessarily peer reviewed at this time. But the statistics that came out of China were that it was between 44 and 45 percent of people at early onset did not even have a fever. Mm -hmm. So that I found very interesting because we're walking around the United States. Everyone gets their temperature taken. Big deal. (laughs) If if, if only 44% had had fever. And so I'm looking at the reason I was denied is because I haven't traveled in the last two weeks to a hot spot. That was the only reason. And I think fundamentally, it, it really brings up the question of what our priorities are as a society. And we need to prioritize public health. And I think we're seeing by our response that we, we may have, as a society, reprioritize different things um, as a country and that we should take a, a long and sober look at what our values are and who we value and, and whose lives we value. Because uh, a lot of what I'm hearing from our community is, is that people feel that they're disposable, that no one cares if something horrible happens to them because healthier people, it'll be a bad flu and they'll you know, have to you know, do a lot of things and be homesick and take off a week or two of work. But for people with underlying medical conditions, for people with chronic disease, the, the fear is, is that society just doesn't care and didn't up until very, very uh, recently. And we really, I think after we get through this, as a country, I know we work with, um, we, have a, we have a nonprofit in Australia, Creaky Jones Australia, mm-hmm. so we've been talking with them about their specific needs, our folks in Latin America through Creaky Jones and Espanol, and we really need to come together and, and, and decide what are our priorities as us talking here in the United States and then us as a global community, and who are we valuing, who do we want to help and support, and I think that this is a prime opportunity to really um, shift the discussion around believing science. We mm, live in a society yes. and a cultural moment where we don't believe science. We don't trust journalists. We have an attack on, on that. We have an attack on fundamental basics of science. And I think that now this is really hitting home to a lot of folks that, you know what, 
maybe we need to trust scientists and epidemiologists and researchers to give us the answers. And sometimes sound bites and, and talking points and emotionally charged rhetoric isn't the way to go. And I think that we need to really come together as, as a society to create the positive change that we need. That's such an outstanding point. And it, again, goes back to the whole reason that we started this conversation in the first place is because we've really recognized that we need to be speaking globally. This is a global issue. We have patients living with these diseases all over the world. We're all in different phases of what we're dealing with, but we all are still dealing with the same underlying issue. And that's that we are essentially unheard. A lot of us are not elderly. We keep hearing elderly and underlying conditions. But that underlying condition, often you go to the websites and it will specifically list heart, diabetes, lung. And for the average person who doesn't understand, which our diseases are so misunderstood as it is, they're not looking at me. They're not looking at Danielle as, oh, this could be a problem. And the other thing is the whole morbidity. We keep I keep hearing this, oh, well, it's only X percent that die from this. Well, you know what? I could get really, really sick. Mm-hmm. I was really, really sick this time last year with something called Stevens-Johnson syndrome. I mean, so sick. I had black blisters on my lips. I had rash all over my body. It blew holes through my nose, for God's sakes. And it was bleeding constantly. That's what happens when your immune system gets that low. And I am not going to sit around and let people say, okay, well, you didn't die. Right. <laughs> You didn't die, so you're fine. You know, we and the other thing is this is attacking our immune systems and our community. We don't know once our immune system is attacked, we don't know if our biologic is going to work the same way. That happened to me. I am still struggling to regain the efficacy I had and the biologic that's worked well for me for six years because of that, that stripping of my immune system. So this is a big issue in our community. And, you know, I know that Joe, you all had published an article on this and I participated in it myself recently, several patient advocates, uh, Carice Hill, who is one that, that is a co-host on this podcast started this, uh, a lot of advocates. It wasn't, it wasn't just them, but the, um, hashtag high risk COVID-19 and yeah, just to add to the other, the, um, the other folks that were part of that, Molly Schreiber, Jed Finley, Jen Walker, Don Gibson, and Roy Bouchard, I believe his name is. Okay, Sorry, thank you Roy, for that, because I, I didn't it. have the whole list I know, in front it's, of me. And, and it's hard, because we all do this together, and Creaky Joints was, you know, encouraging our leaders and patient leaders to take control of their own health and issues and really push the envelope in a positive way. And we were happy to help amplify that effort. Uh, It was covered in the Huffington Post and CBS and many different publications that took notice of the um, younger face or the the non-sick looking face or the the invisible nature of of these diseases. So it raised a lot of awareness, but we have a lot of work to do. Yeah, we Uh, sure do. There's a lot of people that don't understand and we um, are continually pushing using our resource and energy as a nonprofit that has the ear of both rheumatologists, as well as patients, as well as um, elected officials. We're really leveraging all of the, the assets that we have and the privilege that we have to be able to create a better society for people that are living with, with chronic disease. You know, I think as we're... Um where I'm looking at the time here, there's so, there's so much to talk about, which is why we're turning this into a series. There's just no way we could talk about everything. But I do want to continue a little bit of this whole social distancing mm-hmm. and the, the importance of understanding. You know, we went from, well, we still, I shouldn't say, this is still happening. A lot of people thinking this is overreaction. You know, this, is, this isn't going to happen to me. We have the whole, at this point, again, in time, at this juncture in time, and I do remember being young and invincible. A lot of the younger people out there not paying attention, having parties with lots of people in attendance, not realizing that they are carriers and that they could go home and and not just grandma. I keep hearing, oh, you'll get Nana sick. Well, you know what? Again, (laughs) you might get your 12-year-old brother or sister sick if they have an underlying immune condition. 
and just try to want to gauge you all your opinions and and dive into that a little bit more on the social distancing part. Yeah, I would love to just share our perspective from Global Healthy Living Foundation. It's been our policy as an organization to engage in social distancing when you're feeling sick. If you're sick, you're to stay home. You And this was before coronavirus. This is because we know that we work. There are people within creaky joints that have various autoimmune diseases. We're interacting with people that do. And we take that very seriously. So our policy has been that from as long as I've worked here and likely way before that, and that's been about eight years, that you really need to, to reduce the spread of infection and germs and viruses. And it's something that is kind of counter to our culture of wanting to feel productive all the time, because that means that you have to slow down and, and stop. And I think that that's a lot of the tension and anxiety that folks have around social distancing. There's also a privilege aspect of it. If you are part of the gig economy and don't have access to, to a salary, uh, a lot of people are losing money. And we're, we're having to choose between public health and some people paying their rent. And our community isn't, that's not a concept that's foreign to our community. We know that people within um, both of our organizations have had to make those decisions that we represent mm-hmm. that had to pick between their medication and their rent, um, having to be able to hold a job or go on disability. So I think that our society right now is grappling with social isolation in a way that the chronic disease community has. Prior to this, I called a loved one that has rheumatoid arthritis and I asked them how they were doing. And she said to me, I do this all the time, <laughs> social isolation. And I was like, you're right. I'm just checking in to, to make sure that, that you're okay emotionally because of all the, the news that's on and people are overwhelmed. So I think that, again, it's a, it's a good opportunity to try to find ways to uh, build bridges with people that don't have the diseases that we talk about every day, that don't understand it, that think of it as like aches and pains that you have that minimize it for various reasons or that stigmatize it. All great points. Danielle, did you have something to add to that? One of the things that I wanted to say is that, like Joe pointed out, you know, our family practices basically social distancing uh, with the exception of my kids still go to public school normally. And right now they're home because our schools are closed. But, but other than that, we generally practice social distancing during flu season anyway. You know, I am uh, extremely high risk for problems because I have an underlying lung issue in addition to my autoimmune diseases. And one of my kids has asthma. So we generally try and avoid the flu anyway. One of the problems that we've been having, um, and I've been hearing from other people in my area have been having, is that some of the services that we normally rely on to be able to achieve social distancing, like grocery deliveries and things like that, are so overwhelmed because so many people are trying to do that at once that they're not available. You know, I was trying to put in a grocery order last night and every service that I tried was completely booked out for the next seven days. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so that's something that I think people may start to discover if they haven't already is that some of the resources you're accustomed to being able to use may not be available to you because all of a sudden it's the entire population trying to use them instead of just our community or just vulnerable communities. And so we need to be creative in solutions for that. Um, What I did is I went on to a local Facebook group and I just said, hey guys, here's my situation. Normally I use delivery services. I can't get a spot in any of them. If anyone has an order already going, can I add some things to it? I'll come Mm. pick them up from your house. And I actually had a woman who messaged me and said, hey, I will go to the store for you and I'll leave the stuff on your doorstep so you don't have to have any contact. What a great idea. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, I hope that's not what I have to resort to, you know, until things return to the new normal, so to speak. (laughs) Um, But but we may need creative solutions. And I think that people, as they encounter challenges, you know, reach out to your community through social media or phone calls, you know, whatever your preferred method is, and really try to come up with solutions that don't involve, okay, well, I'll just go to Walmart because, you know, we're, if if somebody has to go to Walmart, it probably should not be the person who is high risk. Right. 
Absolutely. As we're sort of winding this down, there again, there's so we could probably sit here for eight hours and, and yeah. talk, which is why we have to we have to break this up. But I do want to just briefly touch. We're not going to go over details. Most of this is on websites. Uh, I believe Joe on Creaky Joints. There's there's some information on prevention and hand washing, all, all of that stuff. We don't need to we don't need to talk about it. But I I did want to just bring it up in the whole aspect of social distancing is how important it is still to think about those type of preventions, but also keeping your lungs healthy. I was talking to a nurse a couple of days ago who said, you know, our population in particular, this, this virus does attack lungs and we need to think about deep breathing exercises, moving, how, especially in isolation, it's important to keep moving, walking, don't let your lungs get lazy, in other words. Um, and, and if you smoke or vape, that's something to really consider as well. So I just wanted to throw those out. And if there's anything else that you all wanted to add to that. Hydration. Hydration, Hydration is yes. a big one. I can tell you from somebody, I've had a lung disease for, I think, about nine years now. And every single time I end up in the ER with it, you know, when I'm on the the uh, pulse oximeter, if, if I drink water, you can watch my lung capacity improve. So hydration is a huge factor. And we know most people are chronically dehydrated. So, you know, lots and lots of water would be very helpful. And adding to all of that, we, we have to remember our mental health and we have to make sure that we're seeking support. Um, however, we define that the support can be from an online community. It could be from a friend. It could be from going to a Facebook group and figuring out how to get your essentials because that will reduce stress in your life and contribute to better mental health. Mm -hmm. It could be um, just understanding that we as a community have to come together to support each other because we're all under an immense amount of stress right now with all the unknowns, with all of the discussion around this. And we're talking about people's lives. So there's an immediacy and there's uh, an urgency to the discussion that really has been causing an increase in anxiety and, and other, other things for folks. So we have to um, just check in on folks and make sure that they're doing okay. Yeah, that's a really great point, Joe. And I think also to remember, be respectful to others at this time. I'm fortunately still seeing too many people telling those who are fearful, just stop it. I just, want to, just stop it. This is you're, you're over overreacting. You're overreacting. This is not going to happen to you. And it even in, in our patients living with our diseases, telling this to one another. And we want to make sure that, that there are safe spaces for people to ask questions. And we don't want to create fear. Of course, we're here to support. We're here to talk to each other. But if you are fearful, it, it should be OK to ask questions. And we really do hope that we all can remain respectful to to those who do have those questions. And also, Joe, you mentioned uh, resources as far as like online communities. Um, what is what is Creaky Joints Global Healthy Living Foundation doing where, where patients can reach out and find you all and get some support? Definitely. So um, we have a we, we dedicated a one stop shop landing page, creakyjoints.org slash coronavirus. Uh, we have ongoing social media posts on Facebook and Instagram and Facebook's at Creaky Joins. Instagram is Creaky underscore Joins. And we've been pushing out a lot of the breaking news and information at Creaky Joins at Twitter. Last week, we hosted a, a Twitter chat on this very topic and got hundreds and hundreds of participants and reached probably 17 or 18 million folks with that, with that discussion. We are working with Dawn Gibson to do a Spoonie chat takeover Wednesday the 18th. So right after this airs, it's 8 or 9 p.m. Eastern, but look at the Creaky Joints uh, Twitter handle to get the exact time. And we really just want to ensure that people are getting the information and the support that we need. One thing that we noticed weeks ago when we started to post a lot about it, there were folks that were saying, oh, you're posting too much about the coronavirus. Yep. It's just a hoax. Stop posting about it. And then we, we were very firm and, and loving to those, to those members. We said, listen, this might not be information that you need, but it's information that someone needs. And we're going to continue posting and talking about it until we feel our communi community is adequately addressed. 
and adequately taken care of. And that tone has dramatically shifted on our posts and in our discussions and in our comments. And um, people are seeing and appreciating the work that's being done. And those folks may have um, either realized that it's important to sometimes respect the, the fear and anxiety of others over your desire to push out an opinion, um, because you really don't lose anything by listening to the voices of, of people who feel really deeply impacted by anything. If anything, we gain greater love, compassion, and understanding. Absolutely. Just to tie into that too, so people know what we plan on doing here at International Foundation for AI Arthritis is we are setting up a group on our Facebook page, which you can find at IFAI Arthritis, and it will be specifically for COVID-19. We will post all of our episode links to these podcasts in there so that people can go in and have conversations about them. We are also launching our sister site to this podcast called AI Arthritis Voices. Let's just take off the 360.org where people living with these diseases can sign up. It, you will have an alias, so it is anonymous discussions, but we, it is an application form because we do want to vet it for people living with these diseases, and we will have special conversations um, set up in there as well. We are also using this platform, again, as mentioned in the beginning, to all nonprofits, rheumatology groups out there who want to have a platform such as this to have discussions. There are so many topics we briefly covered today, and there are many stakeholders that we need to bring to the table. We talked about the need to speak more about our condition with rheumatologists. So we do have a separate breakout segment that we call Roomy Rounds, and we will be having um, Dr. Al Kim and other rheumatologists back to discuss with that. We want to have some breakout conversations on the whole idea of social distancing and isolation and how we can be creative and have creative solutions on how to keep uh, our mental health and, and keep happy during these times. Carice Hill is going to come on and talk more about the need for our voices to be heard in our community. We're talking to nurses, hospitals. I mean, the list goes on and on. We don't know how long this breakout series will go. Um, it's going to go just like Joe said. It's going to go as long as it needs to go. I also wanted to mention, uh, we talked a little bit about research and the need for this. I know Joe Global Healthy Living Foundation and Creaky Joints has also signed on as a supporter as we are, and the list is growing daily. There is an effort led by rheumatologists supported by the ACR and other groups in a website called roomcovid.org. And all of our organizations and rheumatology professionals are uniting together. They are creating what they're calling the COVID-19 Global Rheumatology Alliance so that as patients are diagnosed with COVID-19, if they are diagnosed with COVID-19, that we have a registry so that we can start the research specifically in rheumatology, which is another reason why I said earlier, I would love to be able to be tested, <laughs> um, but we'll, we'll see what, what happens. Other than that, I just want to thank you both for joining us. We are we are out of time, but just because the conversation ended here doesn't mean that it has to end permanently. Um, Joe, thank you so much for coming on. We so appreciate it. It was a delight, and I appreciate the energy and, and the work that you are doing uh, on behalf of people that aren't seen. Yeah, thank you. And 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 Danielle, thank you as well. Um, Danielle is one of our, our repeating co-hosts that you really brought a, a great perspective and, and knowledge to this conversation. So that is so greatly appreciated as well. Thanks. I love podcasting. So <laughs> it works out well. All right. That, that sure does. So you can find this and all of our podcast episodes at AIarthritis.org backslash podcast. We are building out a separate section for these particular COVID-19 segments, just as we did for the Roomy Round segment. So this podcast is certainly growing and you can find all of those. You can also find us on social media. All of our handles are the same, ifaiarthritis.org, where we encourage you to share your voice because only together can we solve the problems of tomorrow. And let's all pull up some seats at the table, continue this discussion and join together throughout this time in the world. Thank you all so much. 
Arthritis Voices 360 is produced by the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis. Find us on the web at www.aiarthritis.org. Join us again on Wednesday for our special breakout episode, where we bring your comments, questions, and ideas to the table. Also, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and stay up to date on all the latest AI arthritis news and events. Thank you.